If you're a fan of the Game of Thrones, then here's a little bit of trivia. In 1970, a young science fiction writer turned chess player, George R.R. Martin, played with his Northwestern University team against one of the fastest computers of the day. And the humans won. It would take another 27 years before IBM's Deep Blue defeated world chess champion Gary Kasparov. And how's this for a coincidence? This happened a few months after Martin published his first book in the Game of Thrones series. Chess, with its focus on logic and strategy, with a touch of creativity, has long been considered the high bar for machine learning. Having attained that in 1997, attention turned elsewhere, to self-driving cars. So in 2005, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, started a series of challenges to push the technology. Can a machine react to a variety of sensory input? Could autonomous vehicles ever think and react like a typical driver? In 2016, DARPA turned to hacking and sponsored a CTF challenge, the Cyber Grand Challenge, to see whether machines could successfully find and patch software vulnerabilities. This was an automated version of the typical capture the flag competition, and what happened there is covered in episode three of The Hacker Mine. It's worth a listen. But what happened the day after CGC? That was the day that the very best human hackers were invited to play against the winner of CGC, a computer reasoning system named Mayhem. This was like Martin challenging the Vax computer at Northwestern, or Kasparov challenging Deep Blue. And it starts to answer the question, can a machine really think like a hacker? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm continuing to talk about the rise of security automation and what we've learned after the first and only Cyber Grand Challenge in 2016. Shall we play a game? Game theory is an important part of the underlying strategy used by hackers when playing attack and defend, capture the flag. It's thinking how your opponent might respond to an event and then planning for it. It's knowing when to patch and when not to as part of the winning strategy. DARPA's CGC was modeled off of DEFCON's Capture the Flag. The machines were to attack each other and therefore had to defend. But for a machine to join the otherwise human activity, changes had to be made to the human CTF game as well. Tyler, team captain of the champion Plaid Parliament of Poning, or PPP, explains. So the, the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge organizers collaborated or had some agreement with the DEFCON CTF organizers. So the platform for DEFCON CTF that year was the same platform as the Cyber Grand Challenge platform. Tyler has a unique view. He worked on both the Cyber Grand Challenge and then went to lead PPP at DEF CON that same year. So this was interesting for two reasons. So one was that they actually had uh, the Mayhem system participate in the Capture the Flag contest against humans, which was pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, the other was, you know, I. I didn't. I was participating separately as uh, as on the PPP team, um, but I was very familiar with you know all the intricacies of the platform because you know we'd been working with it for like two years. So they loosened the rules a bit for that CTF and allowed some humans to work on the uh, the Mayhem team. The organizers of the CTF at the time were they spent a lot of work to make that happen, and I'm very grateful that they did. This is Alex Rivera, co-founder for All Secure and team captain at CGC for Mayhem. 
but they kind of designed the CTF based on CGC to be able to invite the machine to play against some of the best CTF players in the world, right? We came as as Mayhem, you know, we're just like sitting there making sure Mayhem runs smoothly. After after CGC, we discovered that yes, you know, we will be playing against like pretty much like the machine that won the DARPA CGC competition. Meet Ari. Unlike Alex and Tyler, she was not part of the CGC team. She's a member of PPP, and as a seasoned CTF player at DEF CON, Ari was used to learning what the rules of play would be for this year's challenge a mere 24 hours in advance of the game. At DEF CON 24, with Mayhem in the room, the changes were significant. And then that machine will be playing against 15 other human teams was very, very, very interesting at that point. And we had to learn about um, the operating system that the machines were playing on. Uh, so basically, the organizers of the CTF had to tailor the game uh, so that the machine would be able to play more easily and be able to integrate into the, the game that we were about to play. We had to sort of like learn what <laughs> the machine was doing previously, build some tools around that. Luckily, like they sort of introduced uh, the operating system beforehand. So during quals, there were some binaries that were written for the specific operating system. So uh, some people were able to like practice and like some people um, started thinking of tools because it, it kind of like was a hint. Our, our team also prepared and wrote some tools uh, for trying to automate analyses. We also have uh, a small like fuzzing system that we had. It was similar to Mayhem, but not quite like as uh, extensive. So, you know, so we, we were also preparing for it. Despite the best efforts of both organizers, the two systems really weren't that well integrated. There were differences in the infrastructure that made Mayhem very sad because, you know, the organizers didn't really have a chance to test it. Well, my understanding was that it was um, setup problems. This is Ned. Like Tyler, he was a member of both CGC and PPP at DEF CON 24. There were just some, some tiny misconfigurations from what I remember as far as the competition. So I don't think we got a clear picture of how Mayhem would have done if everything was, was equal. Mayhem didn't do so well against actual young players. I think the, the main win I can say is that we were not last all the time. We were kind of like second to last or like third to last during the middle of the competition, which I think is cool, but it's not something that you can put in a flashy headliner. <laughs> it was interesting to see what automation could do against human players. I think it was not highly fair comparison due to technical issues. And this is maybe, I mean, maybe it's fair. Machines, at least Mayhem and probably every machine in CGC, they're not very flexible. There's a lot of kind of unfortunate things. So Mayhem didn't do very well at all. I think it, I think it ended up in last place. Part of that was because, you know, it's, it's a hard competition. And like, whereas the Cyber Grand Challenge was, I don't remember the exact details, but it's something on the order of 100 binaries over the course of like eight hours that are, you know, all of easy to medium to maybe slightly hard difficulty. The DEFCON CTF is maybe a, a dozen binaries or less that are all very hard difficulty. The other issue was more logistical, which is that the organizers for uh, the Cyber Grand Challenge were very paranoid about any sort of details leaking about infrastructure, which means that 
they had the DEF CON organizers implement a completely different infrastructure that was supposed to be API compatible with the CyberGrant Challenge infrastructure because you know they were worried if there was a vulnerability in one of them, it could leak out and whatever. So they were very careful about not letting the actual contest infrastructure be exposed to anyone. The game was very different. It wasn't so all the attacking was done on the servers themselves. So it was being evaluated on a server machine. So previous games, it was, you know, the IP address of your other teams and opponents, and you basically directly attack the services on that particular IP, send exploits and uh, do all that stuff. Uh, but for this one, we send it to like a scoring server. And basically the scoring server evaluated our our binaries for an exploits, figure out if like our patches were meeting SLA checks. So SLA checks pretty much means that the service is running as intended. So basically we didn't break anything from the service itself. With harder challenges, it's very important to get kind of an initial idea of what the challenge is doing based on network traffic. There, there were a couple other things, but that was one of the, uh, one of the issues that, that came up. During the competition, both in CyberGrand Challenge and, and the DEFCON CTF, um, the system provided you with network traffic that your service, your buying is was saying, right? And, and so you get this, this network dump um, and you can analyze it, let's say, to extract uh, bugs or exploits and kind of make your own out of it. And that's really, really valuable. A lot of exploits that people get is from just analyzing the traffic that other teams are sending. Compared to the CyberGrand Challenge spec, the DEFCON CTF had kind of the sender and the receiver bit flipped. So for example, you know, the network traffic that we got, I think they had like flipped source and destination. So like when we got something reported to us, instead of seeing, uh, you know, PPP through this exploit at Mayhem, instead it would say like PPP received this exploit from Mayhem. So, you know, for, for our team looking at it as humans, it's like, okay, this is screwed up, we'll just flip it around. But then for the automated system, it's like, I, I don't know what's going on. Mayhem never really understood that at all. Like we didn't design Mayhem to like look for errors in the specification or anything like that of the game. And so I, that's where human help was really help necessary, right? And like I spent a lot of time one night during the competition to kind of fix that in Mayhem and make sure we analyzed like all of the traffic that was that we ever saw. And then we found like three more crashes, you know, and there was not that many mining. So that was pretty significant. And I, I think that was also kind of an interesting insight of like the value of having uh, people in the loop. That was the year where they, they introduced consensus in the game. So consensus evaluation pretty much means that Everyone that's playing the game knows the exact state of the game. Also, like all our patches for the different binaries are available to all the teams, so being analyzed. Uh, so, if a team patches a vulnerable service, we'd be able to look at what they changed and pretty much try to figure out, you know, if they were able to successfully patch the bug or not, and find other vulnerabilities uh, against that. But with introducing this type of mechanism, it also brought the challenge where we had to analyze a lot of binaries at the same time. So because we have, about, I think it was about 15 teams at, at that point, 
and like we're we're receiving everyone's binaries, different versions of the binaries, different states, and like we have to keep track of everyone's patches so we know like what kind of exploits send each team. Being able to keep track of all those introduce an interesting problem where like you know some kind of automated analysis might come into play. Hmm. Maybe there is a place for automation in these human games. One of the teams, not PPP, brought their machine from CGC and operated as sort of a hybrid team system. But in the end, the team finished 10th out of 15. So maybe hybrid isn't that much of a game changer. But the difficulty of those hybrid systems is, are they doing well because the people are good? Or are they doing well because the system's good? I, I know DAPA has a couple hybrid cybersecurity programs, I'm not sure they solve that challenge. So what does and what doesn't get automated? Having CGC and DEF CON back-to-back may have provided some answers, if not raised, more questions. They're both really big events happening in close proximity, and they're both using kind of the same skill set. So I do remember, though, that typically there's not a lot of conversation about automating in this space during CTFs. And I think people can be cynical about what can be automated but i do remember at least one teammate expressing that they felt like i think once people got the idea that oh this probably could be automated you start to think about like well what am i doing right now that's so repetitive and it it definitely kind of i think it it kind of cast a shadow over some of what we were doing manually and there's kind of this big question of like oh wow you know we kind of did create an automatic ctf bot that you know, can it, it's it's one of these things where it's like I bet if some of these challenges could have been done by a bot, it's clearly superior. You know, so I think there was kind of a lot of thought about that uh, at the time. Uh, when when it comes to problem solving, I I like it when things are really there's not a lot of fluff added to a problem that you have to like dig through. It's it's nice when a challenge is just very cleanly presented, like it's just fundamentally interesting and difficult. So I think the fact that the CTF was formatted like CGC uh, made it better because it, it basically took out a lot of the randomness that you would normally see, and it kind of provided a standardized <clears throat> format for the uh, for the challenges. Maybe this competition was level, but the underlying fact is that human reasoning and creativity remain superior to machines. As you get closer to the final product with an exploit things kind of get messier and messier. And so you start out with, uh, you know, here's a program, here's how you input something into it, get it to crash. You know, Mayhem is designed to explore that problem. So it can provide you with evidence of a vulnerability and an input that will prove that we can get into this buggy state. But the problem is, uh, you know, that's not enough to kind of Uh, You kind of have to take that bug and then stitch it together with some like pre-existing techniques to actually get a kind of end-to-end package that'll just exploit the system. And this is something we kind of see in the security field in general, is that the strategies that are involved in getting a working exploit versus the inputs to them, which are like the, the vulnerabilities themselves, these are kind of two orthogonal things. So the vulnerability part hasn't changed much in the past you know, decade, I would say, but how you actually exploit the vulnerability, that's changing you know, yearly depending on what you're looking at. And so you just kind of have to, those things sometimes can be automated, 
but I think that's where the human is really important to at least maintain such a system. As Alex said, at the end of the day, machines just aren't very flexible. Sometimes they have to be directed, even told what a bug is and what is not. You know, I've seen things like sometimes a machine couldn't recognize what a bug even is. And so the human would have to encode. And, and in fact, that's that's kind of how it works is uh, um, you can have a crash, which indicates something went wrong. Other than that, a, like a lot of the tools we use to detect vulnerabilities are really just humans having encoded when you see this thing happening, you know, this is flagged this for us. And this is a highly important signal. If you ever see it, it's highly indicative of a bug. You know, you need those signals. And then, you know, once you have the bug, the human understands like, okay, well, this is what that signal represents. And here's how I turn it into an exploit, basically. And not all vulnerabilities lead themselves to exploitation, but sometimes you can piggyback seemingly unrelated vulnerabilities. I mean, the canonical example, not to go too technical, but generally you want to be corrupting uh, something like a, a pointer. And um, there's this thing called ASLR where pointers are randomized. So you have to know in advance. You can't, as an attacker, you don't know what value to put there. But if you have another vulnerability that lets you read memory you're not supposed to, you may be able to steal one of those values and then uh, modify it and then use the other vulnerability to overwrite it. So so that's kind of, that's kind of how it works, right? It's like you have well, I know to get around this, I need to corrupt a pointer. And, you know, I know what it's going to look like if that happens. And I know I need to go to read something. So I need a way to annotate that, you know, if I read something from here, I wasn't supposed to have read it. And, you know, those are the kind of things that humans, today, today humans are kind of needed to know how to encode that. That said, Mayhem didn't do too badly creating its own patches and exploits. One aspect of the CGC challenge was to share patches produced by each machine, which were then scored for effectiveness. This carried over into the DEF CON CTF that year. It was pretty funny because there were a lot of, you know, we, we, we weren't, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to do something because like, you know, we, we knew exactly how a lot of the system worked. So one of the, uh, um, one of the unique features of CGC that has since, uh, gone down to other CTFs is the idea of if I patch a service, um, you know, the the uh, the binary that I produce becomes public. So sometimes in CTFs, that's not the case. So after I patch something, no one else can see it unless they like hack into my system and like find it. Um, whereas with CGC and other CTFs after CGC, they'll actually publish all of them which makes it more interesting because you can't do kind of stupid things where it's like, oh, I added six to all the, you know, offsets. And so now your thing doesn't work. It's, you know, because you, you'd see something stupid like that. So part of this is people will copy other people's patches if they think it's going to be a good patch. Because they're like, well, if you patch the system, why would I bother to spend time doing it if you already patched it? So then it goes one level further where then you say, well, I'll add a backdoor. And so if you copy my patch, you'll download a backdoored version that only I can exploit. And so, you know, for some of the things like, uh, I, I think for, um, for CGC, we ended up not pushing a backdoored version because we were too worried that, you know, something would happen and our backdoor would fail or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, there are plenty of times when as PPP, we were just like, well, that mayhem system looks like it did a really good job. Let's just take its patch because we know it's not going to backdoor it. Um, 
And we saw other teams doing the same thing, which is really funny because, you know, you get to see everyone's traffic. So like, well, you know, this other team decided that Mayhem did a good job. So they're probably right. So we'll, we'll just copy it too. So there were quite a few things like that, which were pretty funny. In the end, Mayhem didn't do that badly. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's still lost. But the highest scoring team that year happened to be PPP with a final score of 133,000. Mayhem in last place finished with 73,000, but the next highest scoring team was only 300 points ahead. That's not bad for a machine. And given how hard it is sometimes to exploit a vulnerability, Mayhem did manage to surprise even PPP. As far as having Mayhem play, I thought that was very interesting because I think I remember a time where like, you know, Mayhem actually scored on other teams. Well, you know, that's that's pretty cool. Like a machine was scoring against these human players. And I haven't seen that before playing CTFs. And I thought that was was really cool. One of the other kind of cool examples that I only learned about afterwards was there was some some minor bug that was like the ability to um, to write a null byte somewhere. Um which, you know, when we looked at this as PVP, we were like, okay, that's, you know, we can cause a system to crash by writing a null byte out of bounds, but we can't really do a whole lot with this. Um, you know, this, this seems like it'd be really annoying to try to turn into an uh, exploit that'll get us control of the instruction pointer and another register, which is what you require to do to, to show you exploited it. Um, but it turns out that Mayhem actually found an exploit for that. Um, also, uh, there was like... This is also very memorable from that CTF. There was a bug that George Hotz found. Hang on. George Hotz, a.k.a. GeoHot, just happened to be playing for PPP that year. You may remember that at age 17, he unlocked his iPhone so that he could use any carrier he wanted to. That might not sound incredible, except he was the first person to do that. And only a few years later, he reverse-engineered a Sony PlayStation. This was such a problem that Sony had to shut down its PlayStation service to fix it. So this same George Hotz found a bug during the CTF at DEF CON 24. So he found this bug and he was looking at how to like exploit the bug and trying to figure out, you know, what to do. And he, I remember him saying, you know, this bug looks really annoying to exploit. And so it was taking him a while to write an exploit for it. And then all of a sudden, we see Mayhem exploiting the same bug and like throwing it against us. I was like, what? <laughs> so <laughs> that I thought was like, that, I, I thought that was pretty cool. It's a pretty complicated exploit where, you know, it, it writes the null byte. It, it basically overwrites an address and it overwrites the least significant byte with a null byte, which then when something you know, uh, tries to like restore some variables off the stack. It restores the wrong variables. And now that it restores the wrong variables, you can re-exploit this part in a new different way because all its variables are scrambled. So then it, it is kind of like a several stage process, which was pretty in depth. Um, and it was pretty cool because, you know, as humans, we're like, oh, that seems really annoying. I don't know how we're going to do that. But apparently the automated system did it. So what, if anything, did we learn from this exercise? Yeah, it's cool to have a machine go up against some of the best hackers in the world. But are there any real takeaways from it all? I think like anything else, you, you have a spectrum, right? So there's what you know humans are doing by hand. And then there's like, when you notice that, we might be able to 
automate some repetitive action, you might, and then you decide it's actually worth it to go through the work to automate that because it's often it takes some effort. Um, I honestly think uh, CGC kind of gave the the funding and the incentive to actually work on that problem. Like I have no doubt that CTF could be dramatically more automated, but there's just not really an incentive for someone to be spending that kind of um, effort on it. So I think that was the question in my head is it's like, well, you know, right now the incentives push people to do things manually because it's cost effective enough. You know, I'm kind of steering into like vulnerability research, research here, but a CTF team is doing it as a hobby. They're going to try to be competitive as humans. They're not, they're not really thinking about, or it just may be too difficult to spend that amount of resources, you know, to automate. So, I mean, yeah, when I said casting a shadow, I think I, I, you know, I started to think about that a lot more. And from what I remember, there were some other teammates kind of talking about that. Like what, what would it be like if you could automate as much as possible and you kind of didn't have the, the resource constraints like a student group has, you know? And maybe, just maybe, hacker CTFs are just too abstract for a machine, not practical for daily life. Those who play CTFs might disagree. But some overlap that I do see um, is being able to stare at a problem during a CTF and trying to like figure out, you know, analyze what's going on, being able to stare at it and just keep persevering, I think is very helpful because... Um, that directly translates to like work itself because there are a lot of unknowns in like the real world. And if you just give up, it's like, you know, you won't be able to solve anything really. Um, but as part of my job, I also do like a lot of reverse engineering. Um, so it kind of directly translates to it. And um, some of the tooling um, in like development work. So playing CTFs, you also do a lot of development work, like setting up infrastructures, um, setting up different systems to be able to um, to be able to play the game. That directly also translates because you know programming is a big part of my job still. Being able to understand how binaries work and how um, vulnerabilities uh, work is also quite important in my job because I, I get to deal with real-life vulnerabilities being exploited by um, attackers trying to attack basically my uh, place of employment as well as the users that are using it and I see this stuff every day because part of my job is tracking different uh, hacker groups and um, being able to know like what they're up to, uh, what kind of campaigns they're running, that kind of stuff. So um, most of the stuff that I kind of do in CTFs, you know, kind of translates to very well with like what I do in real life. So we're still a few years from having a computer think like a hacker, but like a machine playing chess, it will happen. And it's good that we have this baseline that we can start today to have both technical and ethical discussions around what benefits autonomous systems will bring to information security. But will the machines ultimately replace us? Probably not. At least, I hope not. For the hacker mind, I remain the human Robert Famosi. <laughs>